Well, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to borrow one. We've got some Bibles in these black chair pockets, and uh, they're in stacks at the ends of the aisles on the side. So if you want to borrow one, please do. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we're turning to Genesis chapter 3. So the chapter numbers are the big numbers. Verses are the small ones, so find first book of the Bible, the big three, and we'll begin, we'll begin in verse 1. This will be on the screen behind me as well. So please follow along as I read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Will you pray with me? 
Our Father, we have come this morning to meet with you. We have come to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say. And we receive this book as your word. It is a treasure. It shows us Jesus. And so please come and help us to attend to your word this morning. Help us hear. Help us receive. Help us respond. Please glorify Jesus in this time. We pray in his name. Amen. I never know what to say when people ask me what my hobbies are. I have small children, so my hobby is napping, and I never get to do it. The closest thing to a hobby that I have is reading. I love to read. I love to get lost in a good story. And one of the ways I know I'm reading a great story is I, at several points during the story, I just want to throw the book across the room, but I can't because I have to find out how it ends. The, the author is able to bring the heroes into situations of such desperate danger that I just can't take the suspense, but that same suspense draws me back in so I can find out how it all turns out. And one of the greatest plot twists, one of the hardest things for an author to get done is to have one of the central characters betray the hero of the story. When that happens, I just want to walk away, but I have to know what's going to happen. I remember I read Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is the sixth book in the series when I was in college. Um, I was reading these in college. That's, that's a fair assessment. I was on college break, so I didn't have anything to stop me. I didn't have to sleep. I didn't have to eat. I could just plow right through this book in one sitting. And at the end of that book, there's a betrayal so massive that I literally couldn't process it. I just sat in my chair, my mouth hung open, I stared into space, my brain just shut down. I went back to it, I read the chapter again to make sure I hadn't missed anything. I hadn't, it had really happened. I felt, I felt personally betrayed by a fictional wizard. Probably the only thing more startling than reading about the betrayal of a central character in a story is reading a story when you realize that the betrayer is you. Welcome to Genesis 3. This is the second week in which we're exploring together, as Ryan said, the great story of the Bible as a way of understanding our story, of uh, finding where we fit, what our role is in God's story. So to catch you up, if you weren't here last week, in the first two chapters of Genesis, which we looked at last week, God has made an immense and beautiful universe, and in it he has set a lush planet, just abounding in every good kind of thing to eat. And he made this unspeakably good place as a home for the crown of his creation, for humanity, for us. He put the first man and the first woman in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and the garden was a gift to them. It was full of these fruit trees that could eat as much as they wanted, of of any tree in the garden but one. It was a gift to them, and they were a gift to the garden. Their job was to work it, to garden it, to farm it, to make this perfect place even perfecter. Every day, these people did satisfying and enjoyable work. They rested together in the only perfect marriage in history. And best of all, they walked with God. They knew him as a father and a friend. And into this perfect garden came an enemy, a serpent, Satan. Satan was created as a glorious and good angel. He was a servant and messenger of God. But by this point, he had turned against God, and now he was actively seeking to tear apart every good thing God had made. So we see here in verse 1 of chapter 3 that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He was crafty. He was subtle. His words are full of deadly half-truths. 
And we'll see that as, as the serpent speaks to the woman. So the serpent comes to the woman and he says to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now what God had said from chapter 2 was you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what God said is incredibly generous. You can eat of every tree in the garden. You can eat the mangoes, the guavas, the apples, the oranges, the peaches, the cherries, the avocados, the almonds, the papayas, the pomegranates. Everything you can see is for you except one tree, one fruit. And Satan twists God's words to obscure his generosity, to make him seem restrictive and cruel. All these trees, and God won't let you eat anything? Poor you, mean God. And Eve knows that he's wrong, but you can see that the lie is working on her. She's starting to think of God differently because she says in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God had never said anything about touching it. But Eve is starting to think more about God's restrictions than his generosity. So the serpent sees his opening and he comes at her with an outright lie. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God lied to you. He said, you're not going to die. If you eat that, you will finally live. You'll be like God. God knows this and that's why he made the rule. He's trying to keep you down. But if you eat this fruit, you'll become great like he is. What's the serpent doing here? He's planting a lie deep in Eve's heart that God is not good. That he's holding her back. That the way to be truly happy is to break free from God. That's what he's offering you when he says, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Not knowing that there is good and evil, but being able to determine good and evil. To call your own shots, make your own rules, go your own way. You can do whatever you want. You'll finally be free. Now, do you guys know that this lie is still around? The idea that true freedom is to do whatever you like, to be done with black and white, right and wrong, to just indulge your desires, to do, to do whatever you please. But is that freedom? So imagine a fish. Imagine a fish, and if the fish is tired of living underwater. The fish wants to see the cities and the mountains. The fish wants to see the Grand Canyon. So would it be freedom for the fish to leave the water? No, it would be death. Imagine a dialysis patient who is understandably just exhausted of going to the hospital, sitting for hours, going home, going back to the hospital, and he just decides, I'm just going to be free of this. I'm just going to be done. I'm just never going back. Would that be freedom? Freedom is finding the right limits, the limits that give you life. It's finding the life you were made for. Satan is offering Eve freedom from God, but freedom from God is death. So what happened? Eve ate, and she gave some to Adam, who we're startled to find is standing right there, doing and saying nothing. And immediately, verse 7, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So immediately they realized the tragedy of their choice. 
This, this eating this fruit has not given them life. It has filled them with shame and fear. And not just towards God, but towards each other. Right? They're alone there, and yet they still feel like, we've got to cover up. I cannot be seen by you like this. They try to cover their shame with little fig leaf clothing. But no external covering could relieve the shame inside. And then they heard a sound. God walking in the garden. And every day of their life, this had been their greatest joy. God himself, the one they were made for, coming in the cool afternoon to walk with them, to enjoy their company, to let them enjoy his. And for the first time, instead of joy, they felt terror. They were no longer welcome with God. They were no longer fit for his presence, so they hid among the trees. And God knows what's happened, but he still asks them. He still invites them to come clean. And what he gets is excuses. Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So it's Eve's fault, and it's God's fault. It's not my fault. And then he goes to Eve, and she says, the serpent. This is the serpent's deal. I am not responsible. So it's, it's everyone's fault, but their own. Now, the serpent had said to Eve that they would not surely die. He said, God won't really judge you, but he lied. God does judge them. He pronounces judgment on the serpent, and then on the woman, and then on the man. He tells them that they are going to die, that they're going to return to dust, and then they have to leave. They have to leave the only home they've ever known, the place where everything was for their good, the place where they walked with God in the cool of the day. They had to leave And behind them, God put angels with a flaming sword to make sure that they never get back to the tree of life. So they're exiled with no way to get back. That's the story we're living in. That's our story, too. So how do we live in a story with a fall like that? First, you need to learn to lament the fallenness in your life. There are things in your life that are not working. You come home every night sore in the neck from the stress of the office. You go to bed in silence because you can't think of anything to say to your spouse. You're watching a parent disappear into illness and dementia. You open your Bible, you try to read, you feel nothing. We live outside the garden in a world shattered by the fall. It's not just our relationship with God that's broken. It's our relationships with each other. It's our relationship with the world itself, with creation. And and even people who scoff at the Bible, who scoff at organized religion, recognize deep inside of them a feeling that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Children are not supposed to starve. I got here this morning, and there's a car behind this theater with its window shattered because the owner had a flat tire, left it here over the weekend, and some, somebody came and broke into it and took some stuff, right? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Things in your life are not working, and some of that is people's sin, and some of that is just the judgment on the world that, that followed the fall. It's just the fallenness of the world we live in. So let's look more closely at these judgments that God pronounces. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So the the agony, I'm told, of childbirth is a result of the fall. And this is a world without C-sections, without epidurals, without local anesthetic even. 
And it's, it's not just the pain of delivery, but it's the other pains of childbearing, miscarriage, stillbirth, infertility. These aren't judgments on particular people for their sins. This is part of the fallenness of our world. And there's fallenness in our marriages. Look at verse 16 again. Speaking to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that, that desire isn't attraction. The, the word there is against. Your desire shall be against your husband. It's a desire on the wife's part to dominate her husband, to supplant him, to, to take over. And the husband, angered against that, deals harshly with her. Maybe becomes abusive. It says, he shall rule over you. There's going to be conflict in your marriage because of the fall. There's fallenness in our work. Look at verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I, the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Before, Adam's work had been a joy, but now the ground resists him. Now his work fights back. Rain won't come. Weeds infest what he clears. The harvest is too small. His back aches every day. There's pain in the work. And so there is for us, right? Markets fall when we think they should rise. Technology fails us right when the deadline looms. Management doesn't understand your role, and they judge you using all the wrong measures. Pressure builds to sacrifice integrity for expediency. Nothing's ever easy in our work. And finally, there's fallenness in our bodies. Look at verse 19. To Adam again, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All of us are experiencing the reality of death and disease and disability, whether in ourselves or those around us. So what do we do with the fallenness in our lives, with our daily experience of life outside the garden? We need to learn to lament. So what does it mean to lament? Ryan talked about this a few weeks back. To lament is to take your sorrows to God. It's not to come to God asking for anything, but to bring him your sorrows. I love Psalm 62, verse 8. It says, Trust in God at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God invites us to pour out our hearts before him, to empty before him all that we're carrying. So we don't have to bottle these things up, our hurts, our disappointments, our frustrations. We don't have to bottle these things up and just pretend like everything's fine. But we also don't have to complain. Because complaining is when we grumble. We grumble to other people, then eventually they stop listening. We just grumble to ourselves. I deserve better than this. I deserve better than this. This is wrong. Somebody owes me. And that's not lamenting either. Lament says, Lord, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and it hurts. This hurts. It's entrusting our cares and our sorrows to God. God invites us to bring that to him. So the fallenness of the world can turn you in on yourself. It can make you bitter and cynical and hardened. Or it can turn you to God. So what's going on in your life right now that you can take to God in lament? What is happening in your body or your family or your work that's not the way it's supposed to be? God invites you to bring your sorrows to him. 
So the first way we live in the story of the fall is to lament the fallenness in our lives. But the fall isn't just something that happened to us. The fall is something that happened in us. So this isn't just a story that affects us. This is a story about us. And that's why, secondly, you need to own your evil. This is what Adam and Eve are unable to do. They, they won't own up to what they did, to their part, to their choices. They hide, and they cover up, and they shift the blame. It's everyone's fault but theirs. And, and we're, the, we're no different, are we? Right? We still, we still listen to Satan's lie. We still believe that we can be just a little happier without God. If we can mostly obey God and just break a couple commands— and that will be the best of all things. We'll get all the good stuff from God, and then we'll just make this a little bit better by breaking this one and this one and this one. Right? We, we say, I know God says to be generous, but I'll be happier if I keep this instead of giving it away. I know God says to serve humbly, but I think I'll be happier if I get a little bit of credit. I know God says to make peace, but I'll be happier if I speak my mind, if I just, if I just unload on this person. We give in all the time. This is the truth about me. This is the truth about me. I'm a sinner. I sin all the time. I lose my patience because I want parenting to be easy. I avoid necessary hard conversations because I don't like to be uncomfortable. I seek my security in what I've saved in my bank instead of in God's care for me. I give in all the time. And this is the truth about you too. You're a sinner. You are a sinner. We all are. And just like Adam and Eve, we try to escape accountability, right? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have spoken in anger, but I did not get very much sleep last night. I'm just really running on a sleep deficit. That's why I was so angry. I didn't start the rumor. I just passed it along. Anyone, anyone would respond that way if they were so disrespected. We're always shifting the blame to someone else. We scramble to find any way to escape this verdict. We do bad things. We think bad things. We want bad things. Last weekend, on Sunday, I read something on Facebook that made me so angry. It made me like, can't stop thinking about it, can't sit still, lightheaded, vision-blurring angry. And it wasn't about me, but it was so unfair. It was so mean-spirited that I was just angry. I was offended on behalf of the people it was about. And I, I really think that I was righteously angry. But, so I was processing this. I was praying. I was trying not to think of a dozen snarky ways to respond. And this thought occurred to me. This is how God feels about sin all the time. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Our sin provokes God to indignation every day. He's offended by sin, and we sin all the time. Now, I promise you that before we get done, there will be some good news, but I just, we, can we just camp here for a second? Can we just process the reality that we fall short all the time, and there's, there's no sin you've ever committed that God looks at and says, okay, but that, that one's no big deal. We provoke God to indignation every day. We just, we just don't stop and think about it. So, so let's think a little bit, just two examples of the ways God talks about sin, pictures God uses for sin in the Bible. One of them comes from a story Jesus told. 
And he said, sin is like a, a young man who loves his father's things, but not his father. So he goes to his father, and he says, give me my inheritance now. I want to be done with you. I want to go. So his father gives him the inheritance, and he leaves his father at home with a broken heart. Sin is loving God's things instead of God. Another picture God uses in the prophets is of adultery. We take what is most precious, what belongs to our spouse alone, and we give it to someone else. And that's what sin is. We take our heart, which ought to be God's, and we give it to things. We give it to things that are different than God, that are less than him. We, we bring a stranger into the marriage bed. These are the pictures God uses. We just don't stop and think very often about how much our sin grieves God. And here's why it matters. Because Jesus told a story one time with this point, that he who is forgiven much loves much. And he who is forgiven little loves little. So if you think you're pretty good, not perfect, nobody's perfect, but if you think you're pretty good and someone tells you, Jesus died to forgive you, you'll say, hey, how about that? That's really nice. Thanks. But if you know that you fall short all the time, that you sin in a hundred ways a day, that all of your sin provokes God to anger, and that you deserve to die forever away from his presence, and then someone tells you, Jesus died to wipe your slate clean, you're going to jump up and down. You're going to love much because you know you were forgiven much. When we downplay our sin, we cut ourselves off from the joy of realizing what a gift God has given us in Jesus. So, own your evil. Maybe you've never admitted to yourself, much less to God, that you are a sinner. You have sought your happiness not in God, but in things God made. You're the problem. You are the problem. Maybe it's time for you to do that. And once you've admitted to yourself, it's easier to admit it to everyone else. You know how freeing it will be to just take responsibility for your part in the problems in, in your marriage, for your part in the problems at work, to be done scrambling and looking for excuses, looking for someone to blame, looking for a reason that's not your fault. Just take responsibility. You're going to be so free. Think about the good that will come to your family and your friends if you can be done shifting blame and just own your evil. So we need to learn to lament the fallenness in our lives. We need to own our evil. And lastly, we need to treasure the full extent of God's goodness. This place, this passage is so relatable to us. It's so easy to see ourselves here. That it's easy to forget that this passage, like the whole Bible, is primarily about God. God is the hero of the story. And especially in these first chapters of Genesis, we're, we're getting introduced to this God who made the world. What's he like? And we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that he's a good God. Everything he made is good. He's so generous, right? He gives, he gives these people amazing things to eat. He gives them meaningful work to do. He gives them the gift of his own presence with them. He's so good. And now in chapter 3, we see what happens when goodness encounters evil. So how does a good God respond to evil? Part of the answer is justice. This good God responds with justice. He keeps his word that if they ate from the tree, they would surely die. He punishes their sin. Justice is part of God's goodness. He doesn't play favorites. He can't be bribed. Some of us come from countries where corruption is so rampant that it's impossible for people to get justice. And you know that justice is good. Justice is part of goodness. 
But if justice is part of goodness, and it is, and if God is good, which he is, and we are sinners, which we are, then that's trouble. So we're desperate to see that God's goodness is more than justice, that there's more to it than that. And there is. This passage is shot through with mercy. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, God could have struck them dead, right? He said, don't eat of that tree or you'll surely die. They ate of the tree. And that could have been it, right? The Bible could have been three chapters. Actually, the Bible would not, it would have been zero chapters because no one would have been around to write it, right? That could have been the end of the story. But what does God do? He comes looking for them. Do you know that God seeks sinners? Mercy. And, and Adam, there's another point at which after the judgment, after God has pronounced judgment, after they know they're going to die, Adam names his wife Eve, which comes from the Hebrew word for life. So on the day he knew he was going to die, he named his wife Life. Because in God's mercy, he knew he would live long enough to see his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. He knew, I'm going to die, but in God's mercy, not today. God's goodness means he's both just and merciful. But how can he be both? How How can he satisfy his justice and punish sin, but also show mercy to the sinner? There are hints of it in this passage as well. So when Adam and Eve realize what they've done, and they're filled with shame and fear, they try to cover themselves. They try to cover their shame. They try to cover their sin with loincloths, with coverings that are totally inadequate because they made them themselves. But what does God give them? He gives them clothes made of animal skins that cover them completely. The word there is a tunic. It, It covers your whole body. So God provides a covering that they couldn't provide themselves, but at the cost of a life, right? Because the animals had to die in order to give their skins. So God provides covering through a sacrifice. What does that sound like? Even more clearly, look at verse 15. God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God points to a day when a man born of a woman will defeat humanity's enemy at the cost of being wounded himself. Who does that sound like? There's another account of temptation in the Bible. It doesn't take place in a garden, but in a wilderness. Another son of God is being tempted. The the enemy comes to him and once again tries tries to make him see that he could be happier outside God's will for him rather than in it. And he doesn't fail. Jesus is the second Adam who remains righteous under temptation so he can become a perfect savior. Jesus is the sacrifice through which we're clothed with God's righteousness. Jesus is the wounded snake crusher. Do you see the full extent of God's goodness? On the day that humanity fell, on the day that we turned to sin, God already had a plan to satisfy his justice and to show mercy by taking the judgment himself on the cross so that all who trust in him can come home. And when you embrace this, it enables you to live faithfully in the story of the fall. You can lament the fallenness in your life without despair because you know you have a father in heaven who hears you and cares for you and it will not always be this way. You can own your evil because it's already paid for on the cross. You're already covered. 
God knows you're evil. You can admit it to anyone else. And you can treasure God's mercy and God's justice above all where they meet at the cross. Now, we are going to have a chance to respond to this together. Instead of me praying to close, we're going we're gonna to pray together. We're going to confess together to God using words that will be on the screen behind me. We're going to own our evil and we're going to embrace God's mercy. We're going to make confession together out loud to God. So please stand where you are. After this, we'll get into our time of singing. Please stand. And please read together with me the words on the screen behind me. We confess, our Father, that we do not live up to the family name. We are more ready to resent than to forgive, more ready to manipulate than to serve, more ready to fear than to love, more ready to keep our distance than to welcome, more ready to compete than to help. At the root of this behavior is mistrust. We do not love one another as we should because we do not believe that you love us as you do. Forgive us our cold unbelief and make more vivid to us the meaning and depth of your love at the cross. Show us what it cost you to give up your son that we might become your sons and daughters. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our righteousness. Amen.